Hebrews 20:20 we see Jesus increment 181 and the title of today's increment if we were to put a title on it would be he remains a priest forever and we'll be going to Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 1 for that before we do we'll reiterate our important announcement that we are engaged in the Salvation Army Treasures for Children campaign once again this year and we're collecting new toys only new toys now through December 14th and you can call the office at 724-335-3550 in order to drop off your offerings as it were at the Alamo building as we call it let's pray father we thank you for this opportunity we do pray that you will bless this treasures for children campaign and that it will be a great blessing to many children in this area and to many parents indeed and we thank you for the collaboration we've enjoyed over these many years with the New Kensington branch of Salvation Army. We pray that your great blessing would hover over them also and your continued blessing over their ministry. We thank you for this opportunity to gaze into the perfect law of liberty and to see there the image of our Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ, and to be conformed, transformed, from one degree of glory to the next into his image. Magnify your son by me today, Father, by this increment. In Jesus' name, amen. In the list of exiles who had returned from Babylonian deportation to Jerusalem around six, around 516, rather, B.C., were those who were according to Nehemiah 7, and I'm looking at Nehemiah 7, 63 and 64, from the priests, the descendants of Hobiah, the descendants of Hakoz, the descendants of Barzillai, who had taken a wife from the daughters of Barzillai the Gideite, or Gileadite, rather, and was called by their name. Notice that in Nehemiah 7, 64, it says, these searched for their entries in the genealogical records, but they could not be found. So they were disqualified from the priesthood. Now this message will go, as it were, hand in glove with our last increment in considering the genealogy or lack thereof of Melchizedek and of Jesus for Jesus did not lack a genealogy that tied him to the royal line of Judah but he did lack a genealogy that qualified him to be a priest a priest after the order of Aaron through Levi but not it did not disqualify him from becoming a priest like the genealogical less priest named Melchizedek 
We're talking about genealogies in this last message and in this one. Jesus certainly had one. In fact, two in the scriptures. The point for our Hebrew study, however, is that Jesus, though the Son of God, was without genealogy or without the genealogy that would qualify him to be a priest after the order of Aaron through Levi. In order to function as a priest, you had to have a genealogy. If you didn't have the genealogical proof, as these priests that returned from, their, from the captivity to Jerusalem in 516 BC, you couldn't function as a priest. You weren't qualified. So, Jesus was without the genealogy that would qualify him to be a priest after the order of Aaron through Levi. In this way, Melchizedek was made like the Son of God. In that, he too lacked the genealogy, whether on his mother's side or his father's side, that would qualify him to be a Levitical priest. And yet, he was most certainly called priest of the Most High God. According to the Apocalypse of Weeks of Enoch, and I refer you to our last increment, 180, the Apocalypse of the Weeks of Enoch can be found in the book 1 Enoch, or 1 Enoch 91, 11-17, and 93, 1-10. Enoch, according to the Apocalypse of Weeks, and according to Jude, corroborated in Jude 1.14, was the seventh generation from Adam, counting Adam as the first. That's first Enoch 93.3, compared with Jude 1.14. According to first Enoch 10.12, after 70 more generations, 70 more after Enoch, will come the consummation and the judgment of the last day. So the 77th generation in the Apocalypse of Weeks would be understood to be the effective end of world history, the end of the world. Now, by the end of the world, we know what we mean, and I'll say it again through Moltmann. This would also account for the Hebrews author saying that God spoke with finality in a son in these last days. I heard it again recently. People like to say it. We're in the last days, they say, because of events that go on. And they said it many times, as I can remember, in various times of crisis in our country or in the world. These are the last days. These are the last days. Well, God spoke in a son in these last days, which means that the last days were when Jesus was on earth, during his incarnation, during the Christ event, during his sufferings, during his death, during his crucifixion and resurrection from the dead. Those are the last days. These last days. So I'd kind of be careful about how I threw around the term these last days as if this particular time and period in history in which I'm living 
are the last days, as if the last days are defined by you and what you're going through and your generation is going through, and it isn't. So humility ends up being really the basic virtue, does it not? Otherwise we got nothing. So the 77th generation is understood in the apocalypse of weeks to be the effective end of world history. And this would account again for Hebrews author saying that God spoke with finality in a son in these last days. So these last days began and ended in Jesus Christ and him crucified. For the crucifixion and death of Jesus Christ is the end of the world in its corrupt and corrupting form. As Moltmann wrote, and we quoted him before, just because it's the consummation of the creation and of God's history of promise, it is also the end of the corrupted world time of sin and death, injustice and violence. That's what Genesis 1-2 calls tohu wabohu. Christ's burial was the period at the end of the declaration, the declarative sentence, that this sin-tainted world is finished. The resurrection of Jesus is the springing forth of the new creation of all things. Jesus introduced himself to the angel of the church at Laodicea as, quote, the beginning of the creation of God. God chose not to bring all of creation under the omnipotent sway of the kingdom of God all of a sudden. He chose rather to plant a seed and to let it spring up and bear much fruit. Jesus annihilated death. 1 Corinthians 15, 26, 54, 55. Remember that the next time you so-called mourn the death of someone. Jesus annihilated death. 1 Corinthians 15, 26. 1 Corinthians 15, 40, 54 to 55. Not only that, he destroyed the one who had leverage, used death as leverage, who had the power over death. Hebrews 2, 14. Even the devil. The, the, the apocalyptic image of death and hell being cast into the lake of fire, the second death, refers to this, to the annihilation of death and Hades, not the tossing of millions of people into an Im immortal, endless hell. Death, also known as Hades, is the one name that is not found written in the Lamb's Book of Life. The Lamb of God's self-sacrifice redeemed all that God created. Death and hell are not of God's creation. Neither is sin. Christ put away sin by the sacrifice of himself put away sin, expiated it, made it not to be. Now every time I deal with this lately, I have to bring this up. 
because I see this even among so-called universalists. Doctrines that minimize the suffering of the Son of God to me are appalling and abominable. Now Sergius Bulgakov, that's S-E-R-G-I-U-S and then last name B-U-L-G-A-K-O-V. Sergius Bulgakov in his 1933 work called The Lamb of God and very appropriately so. He's to be commended above all for his delineation of the sufferings of Christ and indeed the sufferings of the triune God. Among the many things Bulgakov observes about Jesus' sufferings is this statement that I read very recently and it's still freshly with me. Quote, there can be no question here of commensurability with respect to time. For, in general, the eternal, in quotes, torments are not measured by time. Eternity is a quality, not a quantity. But the brief hours of the Savior's torments encompassed the entire eternity of torments with respect to their intensity. These torments were such that they were capable of abolishing and rendering impotent the sin of the world. Sergius Bulgakov was not one of those fluffy, impotent, pathetic theologians and preachers who minimize or marginalize the sufferings of our Lord Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross and in fact from Gethsemane through Calvary. In perfect harmony with this, Hebrews reveals that when Jesus died, he tasted, and that word tasted doesn't just mean puts on the tip of the tongue and spits out. No, drank to the dregs, as Jesus called the cup that he was about to drink. He drank it to the dregs, to the last drop. Hebrews reveals that when Jesus died, he experienced the death of everyone. This effectively announces the end of world history then, if everyone dies. Again, this effectively announces the end of world history with the death of everybody in the death of Jesus. So where I record any more genealogies. You can spit in a tube and find out where your great-great-great-grandma lived. That's okay. It's probably interesting. Doesn't mean much to me, but I like this better. Genealogies. Jesus is the last name effectively in the genealogy of world history and of all humanity. Christ tasted not only his own death. Here's another one from Sergius Bulgakov. Christ tasted not only his own death, but also mortality itself. 
He died with all humankind. His death included every human death. And it was equivalent to all the deaths in humankind. Bulgakov goes on to say, Herein lies the saving and resurrecting power of Christ's death as the victory over death for every man. And that means every person. That's again Sergius Bogakov. His book called The Lamb of God was considered by David Bentley Hart to be the most significant writing on Christology in the 20th century. I recommend it highly, although the first few chapters are pretty laborious. They deal with the history of the patristic thinking and with scholars like Apollinarius and Nestorius and others and you might not need that but if you go right to the work of Christ in fact to the high priestly ministry of Christ you bought the book for the right reason and it's worth the price just to read about the high priestly ministry of Jesus Christ and the work of Christ toward the last in the last part of the book so I, I recommend it highly for those of you who like to read theology and find it beneficial Jesus' victory over death destroyed death, the last enemy. The annihilation of death is the last judgment. You afraid of the last judgment? I'm not. I'm looking forward to it with great delight. In fact, I'm looking back on it with a glory-filled joy. The last judgment, therefore, occurred in the Christ event. It will be manifested again in the future as having been done. Will there be shame then? Yeah, there'll be the shame that we didn't believe it or that people didn't believe it. The Christ event embraces the Son of God's incarnation, lifelong obedience in the days of his flesh, culminating in the death of the cross. His burial, resurrection, ascension, Exaltation. The Christ event spells the end of the world as a corrupt and corrupting system. And it spells the beginning of the messianic age, the universal year of, ju of Jubilee, when all creation receives its liberation. When debts are forgiven. When slaves are liberated. When the eternal Sabbath begins and all enter into God's eternal rest. The Synoptic Gospels merely record the events that led to Jesus' death. They narrate the event of his passion and death and then his burial and resurrection from the dead. They do not explicitly explain the significance of Jesus' death, at least not overtly as do the epistles of Paul and Hebrews. For example, in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 21, Paul does that. He explains the significance of Jesus' death and reveals the horizon of it. 
the center of it, that he's made to be sin, the horizon of it, that he reconciles the world. All of Hebrews does this too. Throughout all of Hebrews, that's what is being taught, the significance of Jesus' death. Now, that Melchizedek was without a genealogy in, the, in our passage in Hebrews 7.3, either from his mother's side or his father's side, does not mean that this Melchizedek had no genealogy at all and had no mother or no father, not literally. Again, we're doing what Robertson calls mixing figures with facts, figures of speech with facts. The PT simply observes that the scriptural account of Melchizedek in Genesis 14, 18 through 20 does not mention that he has a genealogy, that he has a mother, that he has a father. This plays significantly into the argument of the PT, the author of Hebrews, for the contrast between the Levitical order, which was dependent on a priestly genealogical line, and Melchizedek's priesthood, which was not. I'll say that again, this plays significantly into the argument of the PT for the contrast <clears throat> between the Levitical order, which was, depend which was dependent on a priestly genealogical line, and the contrast between that and Melchizedek, who is not associated with a priestly genealogy, just as Jesus is not associated with a priestly genealogy. He is without that genealogy. In fact, the disqualification of Jesus to be a Levitical priest, and at the same time he's called a priest forever, must show that he is an extraordinary priest. This isn't downplaying Aaron's priesthood, it's just saying there's something greater. In fact, both of Jesus' scriptural genealogies reveal that he is descended from the royal, not priestly, tribal line, both on his mother's side and his supposed father's line. E.W. Bullinger got it right when he wrote this, quote, Melchizedek is presented to us without reference to any human qualifications for office. Ethelbert, you got it right there. His genealogy is not recorded, he goes on to say, so essential in the case of Aaron's sons. And he references Nehemiah 7.64 that we did at the beginning. Ordinary priests began their service at 30 and ended at 50 years of age. That's Numbers 4.47. The high priest succeeded on the day of his predecessor's decease. So the high priest began his ministry not at any certain age, but at the death of his father in the genealogical line. So I'll go on to say this is how Bullinger finishes off this quote. The high priest succeeded on the day of his predecessor's decease. Melchizedek has no such dates recorded. 
He had neither beginning of days nor end of life. That's our next increment. Our next, well, we're going to deal with it in this increment. We only know that he lived. I love that little declaration. We only know that he lived. And he emphasizes the word lived. And he is a fitting type of one who lives continually. Because I live, you will live also, Jesus said. So having neither beginning nor end of days, we're still in Hebrews 7, 1 to 3, 7, 3 particularly. Having neither beginning or end of days makes Melchizedek distinct from all others in the Genesis 5 genealogy, which I refer you to, you can read on your own time, which goes from Adam to Noah. Genesis chapter 5. In that genealogy, there is a pattern in which the male side of the genealogy from Adam to Noah is given. In every case from Adam to Noah, there was a record of the beginning and the end of days of each of the persons mentioned. With one notable exception, that being Enoch, whose faith is commended in Hebrews 11.5. The genealogy of Genesis 5 records the beginning of Enoch's days, but no end of his days. For the scripture says that God took him and he was not seen again. The reason for his reference, or his transference rather, the reason for his transference to heaven, and that's assuming where he was transferred, was that prior to his transformation, he was approved having pleased God. And without faith, no one can be pleasing to God. Hebrews 11, 5 and 6. He was pleasing to God because of his faith. Enoch did not see, that is, he did not experience death. Enoch the seventh from Adam, the son of Jared, and the father of Methuselah, did not undergo physical death. What a contrast. Enoch didn't taste death at all. Jesus tasted death for everyone. It must be that really none of us taste death, but just transfers at physical death into the presence of God. For if our earthly tent is struck, we have a house eternal in the heavens. That suggests that resurrection happens at death, but we won't belabor that. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, the son of Jared and the father of Methuselah, did not undergo physical death. Consequently, unlike all the others in the Genesis 5 genealogy, he had a beginning, but no end of days. We're dealing with phrases from Hebrews 7.3, beginning of days and end of days. We're finding out that Melchizedek had neither in a figurative sense. Let's not, let us not confuse figures with facts. Consequently, 
Unlike all the others in the Genesis 5 genealogy, Enoch had a beginning but no end of days. Adam himself defied the pattern also inasmuch as his beginning was by the direct creation by God and not by being begotten of a human father. That also sounds a little familiar. In that sense, he was called the Son of God in Luke 3.38. Not in the sense that Jesus is the Son of God by an eternal begetting. Jesus is the last Adam, the new Adam, the divine and human Son of God. As the divine Son of God, Jesus literally had no beginning and no end of days. In the beginning, he was. So he had no beginning. He was already in the beginning. The eternal word. The idea that Melchizedek had no beginning or end of days means merely that unlike the men of Genesis 5, Melchizedek is not found in a genealogy. Consequently, no record of his beginning or end of days is found anywhere in Scripture. The Hebrew writer makes something of this. Because of this, some have inferred that Melchizedek must have been an appearance of Christ, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, much like the appearances of the angel of Yahweh or the angel of the Lord in Scripture as he appeared to Hagar. That was a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, the angel of Yahweh. Genesis 16, 7 through 11. Or to Moses in Exodus 3, 2 in the burning bush. To Balaam in <clears throat> Numbers 22, 31. To Gideon in Judges 6, 11. To the parents of Samson, Manoah and his wife in Judges 13, 3 to 22. That's probably the longest conversation we see the angel of Yahweh having. And it's to Samson's mom and dad. Interesting. But it says that Melchizedek was made like the Son of God. It doesn't say Jesus was made like Melchizedek. It says that Melchizedek was made like the Son of God. Meaning that the Holy Spirit through the Scripture made Melchizedek to resemble the Son of God in certain important ways that the PT exploited for the purpose of comparing the priesthood of Melchizedek to that of Jesus, the Son of God, and of showing the infinite superiority of Jesus' priesthood over that of the Levitical priests and archpriests. So Jesus was not without genealogy though he was without a human father. He was also without a mother like any other human mothers. He, was, he had a mother of his humanity, but she was like, unlike any other mothers in that her son was conceived in her by the Holy Spirit. The humanity of Christ was conceived in the Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit. He was without a human father as one who truly and not just figuratively had no beginning of days 
as the scripture says, quote, in the beginning was the word. He had no beginning of days because in the beginning he already was. He was the word. He was God. Always was God. And in Micah 5.1, people's, well, probably my favorite Christmas verse, his procession is from antiquity, from eternity. Of Melchizedek, it is said that he was without mother, without father, and without a genealogy, only in the figurative sense that there is no scriptural mention of these things about him in either the Genesis account or the Psalm Oracle, 110.4. More to the point, the absence of a genealogy in connection with Melchizedek will be shown to illustrate that his priesthood, like that of Jesus, was not bound to or defined by a human tribal lineage like that of the Levitical priests, which was one of their weaknesses. Jesus certainly has a genealogy, once again, but not one that associates him with the line of Aaron through Levi. There is a Levi, a man named Levi, in his Lucan genealogy. In fact, there's two of them. But those, those men are not of the line of Aaron. Jesus is clearly from the line, the hereditary line, that proceeds from Adam, the son of God, through Abraham, and then through Judah and David. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah and the lamb who takes away the sin of the world, both in one person. The lamb who was slaughtered from the foundation of the world. Revelation 5, 5 and 6, Revelation 13, 8. The idea that Melchizedek had no beginning, quote, had no beginning of days, refers to the fact that no record exists in scripture of his beginning to be a priest as a result of succession after another. The beginning of a high priest's days would be at the death of his father, his predecessor. The fact that Melchizedek had no end of days on the other side means that there is no record of when his priesthood ended, whether by age 50 or that his archpriesthood ended at death. We have no record of either. We only have the record that he lived, that Melchizedek lived. And this is how he was made like the Son of God. The Son of God ever lives to make intercession for us. So our salvation is absolutely secure. In fact, the salvation of all is absolutely secure, as I'll make clear at the end of this message. This likens Melchizedek to the Son of God in an important figurative sense, because though there is no record of birth that would qualify him to be a priest of the Aaronic order, he nevertheless lives. Jesus lives forever. He lives to make intercession for us in order to save us to the uttermost, that is, to the point of glorification. And because he lives, we live also. When one died, all died. And when he lived in resurrection, all live. Because Jesus lives perpetually, 
We live perpetually in Christ, for in Christ all will be made alive. Now, let's look at Hebrews 7.1, our passage, and we will translate it completely this time, including with the phrase, without genealogy. Now, about this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest to God Most High, who met Abraham and blessed him, as he returned from the defeat of the kings, to whom Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. First, the interpretation of his name is king of righteousness. Then he is also king of Salem, which means king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, neither having beginning of days nor end of life. Notice that phrase, but made like, or I would translate it as made a prefiguration of the Son of God. He, that's Melchizedek, in effect remains a priest perpetually. He remains a priest forever. Melchizedek remains a priest perpetually only in the figurative sense that he is portrayed as a priest in the scriptures which remain perpetually. The record of Melchizedek as a priest is a perpetual record. And so, in that sense, he remains a priest perpetually. He is, we could say, immortalized in Scripture. For as the Scripture itself says, quote, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Ice ton aeona a word we studied in our terms for forever. A, a phrase, ice tone aeona, that's found in Hebrews 1.8, describing the throne of God's Son. Hebrews 5.6, 6.20, 7.17, 7.21, and 7.28, referring to the priest, the high priest forever. And again, the scripture says, Your word, O Lord, abides in heaven forever. Psalm 119.89, which is the Septuagint of Psalm 118.89, and it uses the words ace or ice tone aona again. And still again, my words will never pass away, says Jesus in Matthew 24.35, recorded also in Mark 13.31 and Luke 2133. So Melchizedek remains a priest forever in the sense that his appearance as a priest in the scriptures which abide forever. He is a priest forever in the sense that he is said to be a priest in the scriptures that abide forever. Jesus, the Son of God, actually and in reality remains a priest forever, not in a figurative sense, but in reality. As far as his divine nature goes, he is without beginning of days. As far as his hypostatic union of two natures goes, he has no end of days. As an archpriest forever, Jesus actually and in reality, and in the flesh we could say, remains a priest perpetually, Jesus, the Son of God. He is able to save completely 
those who come to God through him. He is able to save completely those who come to God through him. Here comes the objector saying, yes, he only saves completely those who come to God through him. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. Ultimately, those who come to God through this priest are all who are drawn or dragged to him, as one translation rightly says. And that means all, because Jesus said, if I am lifted up, referring to his death on the cross, I will draw all to myself. The word draw there is the word, same word used for drag in the dragnet that drags fish to shore after they're caught. I will draw all to myself. John 12, 32. And similarly, Paul writes in Romans eleven thirty two, For God has shut up all human beings in disobedience and unbelief in order to have mercy on them all. And in 11.36 of Romans, for from him and through him and to him are all of the beings, we could say, and that's, a, that's sort of a translation, an expanded translation, are all of the beings of the entire universe of proportionate being in all of its times in a universal return. To him be the glory for all the ages. Amen. Jesus remains a priest for as long as the word of God abides. And the word of God abides forever. Now, as we close this increment, it's important to know that the PT that wrote this homily is specifically writing to a group of people who have already come to God through this priest. And he intends to convey this sense of absolute security to them because there's not much else around them that appears secure, including their acceptance by the current culture and climate of the age. If there's ever a time when you as a Christian are not accepted and welcome and maybe even have hostility against you because of your faith and you look around and you don't see much in this world that provides security and look unto Jesus the author and completer of your doctrine and the author and completer of faith and you'll see that God has absolutely accepted you despite the lack of acceptance by your current culture and by the current climate of our times. And we thank you, Father, for this absolute assurance. For faith itself is the assurance of things hoped for. And it's the conviction of things not seen. Help us, Father, to look beyond the things that are seen, which are merely temporary and transient, and to look at the things that are not seen and which are eternal. In fact, to see him who is invisible and so to endure as Moses did in his long stint in the wilderness. We ask this in Jesus' name and with gratitude, we thank you for the answer. Amen.